welcome to another episode of the Go Within podcast. My name is Yasmin. I'm the founder of Sanya. And today I'm sitting with my nearest and dearest, my flesh and blood, <laughs> my sister, Amber Ria. Um, Amber's visiting. She's been living in Bali for the past seven months, eight months, seven, seven months. Mm-hmm. And um, managed to grab a little bit of her precious time here on the island. She has a lot of people to visit while she's here. <laughs> Um, but we always have so many beautiful things to talk about connected to the wellness. We, we share a passion for meditation, tea, healthy food. Um, Amber's also a musician. So every time we meet, we talk about things which I think are very interesting for the Sanya audience because they're, they're connected to all of the different tools that we promote here to help you go within. So in this conversation, we're going to be focusing a little bit more on Ayurveda. We've had a, a past podcast with Amber where we talked about music as a spiritual practice, which I highly recommend, especially if you're a musician, to check out that episode. But Amber has recently started studying Ayurveda, and um, I have a, a very deep love for Indian culture and Ayurveda and yoga. So um, it's something very, very beautiful for us to dive into and share a little bit of our thoughts because actually it's something that not that many people know about Ayurveda all that much. So happy to bring this and share this with you and uh, welcome, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> it feels weird saying welcome to my own sister. <laughs> happy to be here. Yes, back in the podcast room. Um should we just like jump right into Ayurveda? Like how amazing you're studying Ayurveda. I'm slightly jealous yes. because it's such an amazing <laughs> subject. It um, is. How, how's it going? Let's just start there. It's, I mean, it's so incredible because I, I actually already knew quite a bit about Ayurveda. Um, and I, I didn't think I had that much more to learn, but it's such a rich world. And I'm not even halfway through the the course is two to three years, depending on how uh, fast you go through it. And I'm currently like 10 months in, something like that. Um, and I've just learned so much already. It's really incredible. Um, for me, what's, what's the most amazing about it is just how user-friendly it is. So my background academically is already nutrition. Um, I did my bachelor's and master's degree both in nutrition and I was a little bit uh, jaded, shall we say, about the way that nutrition is done in in the Western kind of society. It doesn't really place any emphasis at all on healing. Instead, it's actually just sort of what can you get away with eating in your current condition. And that just doesn't really inspire me. That's not the reason I wanted to study food. So, you know, I, I was already through uh, halfway through my studies. So I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to at least finish. But I never actually worked in that field. I, I was completely uninspired. And I said, the only thing that will make me continue being interested in this area is Ayurveda. And I knew that one day I was done with studying for that time. And I knew that one day when I had the stamina for it, I would go back to studying. And last October, I felt that that drive. And so I just, I found a really beautiful course. And yeah, I've been studying it ever since. I, I mean, I love obviously what you said there about kind of the, being jaded <laughs> by the like traditional system, because it's something that I bump up against a lot at Sanya. Um, obviously, like I see a lot of clients related to stress. So 
stress like I have lots of people who come to me who are stressed and burnt out and they're seeking help and very often what they are being told by their GPs and and so on is is so contradictory to what I believe and it's very interesting to see <laughs> kind of how many doctors I, I don't want to like slay doctors or anything because there are lots of amazing ones but unfortunately the system itself is not always set up to bring the best out mm-hmm. of a situation and so like with stress obviously anxiety medications and antidepressants are just you know handed out you know very blase you know like you go to your gdp your gdp gp once (laughs) and say like you know i'm stressed and i'm anxious and then it's like okay take these anti-anxiety medications and we're just managing the symptoms instead of actually healing Mm -hmm. i think that's one of the beautiful things about ayurveda which it kind of combines the the lifestyle approach, which is nice, but it can be slow and hard. With also then the herbology, which actually kind of brings mm-hmm. you the results a lot quicker. So mm-hmm. maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Um, yes, I'd love to. I love talking about herbs because herbs are essentially the... If you, if you look at any kind of medication, it's just a refined version of some kind of plant or mineral, or at some point, everything comes from nature. So that shows that nature itself already has some potent ways of offering us healing. And it's just about learning what plants do do what. Um, in fact, a herb, and this is why you would, even with natural um, approaches, you still need to go to a professional because herbs are potent enough. They also have side effects. They can also create some damage in certain ways. In fact, when you're on, for example, some blood pressure lowering drugs you have to be careful what herbs yes and what foods because everything we consume is affecting us right it's not just it's not only medication that's potent it's herbs are definitely very potent and and powerful so we we can't um like neglect them and think like oh they're they're natural therefore they're not going to be as powerful um, often they are just as powerful um, and very often they have way less side effects or at least the side effects are um, less long lasting and so on. I mean, Western medicine is a completely genius system. I mean, they've they've broken down matter to such a minute uh, point and they've understood things in a really thorough way. And it's really incredible and useful and we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater at all. They have so much to offer. It just feels to me really the only flaw in that system is that doctors are not required to learn about nutrition. It's an optional um, side, uh, what's the word, module. Uh, And I have no idea how many people actually take it, but I, I don't believe it's many. And even having gone through the nutrition study studies at university myself, even in a nutrition course, the approach is still not what can food actually really bring us to heal. Um, and I think that's a shame because they're, they're losing out a really important part of our lives. We're eating three times a day, more or less, right? So we have to be aware of what... It, if you were taking a medication three times a day, you'd be like, what's in that? How is it affecting me? You'd take a lot of care. Whereas with food, we don't seem as uh, impressed. Uh, Obviously, we also have our own addictions and things which are influencing those choices, but uh, we we really have to take a bit more care, I think, at the whole lifestyle aspect of of well-being. 
And I think this is where obviously GPs are at a huge disadvantage as well because <clears throat> they don't have the training in the mind and emotional side of things. And of course, I mean, the new research that's coming out about how stress affects, you know, the functioning of your immune system, the functioning mm. of your liver, the functioning of your heart, like so many different processes within the physical body are affected by our state of mind. And and obviously when you're looking at the body just as a physical thing and trying to balance it, then you, you're obviously negating a huge part of what's actually causing the disease in the first place. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> before we talk a bit more about that though, I think actually we should probably have started by um, just explaining what Ayurveda is. Oh, that's maybe, a good maybe, idea. <laughs> maybe not everyone who's listening has, has actually... Okay, so Ayurveda uh, is a Sanskrit word. It comes from ancient India. Uh, Ayur means life and Veda means knowledge or wisdom. So it's, it's a system to help us live life with wisdom. And all that means is learning how to live in harmony with the elements that make up our reality. So in Ayurveda, everything is broken down into the five elements, ether, air, fire, earth, and water. I should say water and earth, actually, because they, they manifest in that exact order from the least, sorry, from the most subtle to the most dense and gross. So all of reality is made up of these five elements and it's kind of a symbolic way of seeing things that makes it really user-friendly. So let's take uh, any sort of, I'm trying to think of a, of a condition, um, let's say depression, okay? When someone is depressed, they feel very heavy and tired and lethargic. They want to stay in bed the whole time that would be more associated to, to the elements of earth and water, which are heavy and dense and low, as opposed to ether and air, which are like high flying and all over the place. Um, so by understanding the way in which these elements move to create reality, we get a sense when something's gone wrong on what has gone wrong, what element is out of balance. And then we look for those elements in food and herbs and lifestyle to bring balance. So usually we're always looking for the opposite. So if you have some kind of condition which is very hot, like uh, any kind of inflammatory skin or inf any kind of inflammatory disorder, um, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, acne, psoriasis, anything that's red, hot, and angry looking. Uh, <laughs> no, because like skin conditions can really look like red and angry and inflamed and hot. So clearly there's an imbalance of the fire element over there. So we would need to balance that out by bringing in more water and depending on whether it's dry or wet, bringing in either air or water. So it's, it's really just, in a way, very simple and, and balancing these different elements. So if we were to look at our food, for example, we would look for foods which are either dry or wet or hot or cold, depending on what we need. So the way you would start when you approach Ayurveda is to figure out what is your natural balance of the elements, right? It's called your prakriti, your nature. In, in other words, sort of like your genetic uh, manifestation, right? So some people are naturally uh, very skinny, tall, and maybe cold, whereas other people 
have a bigger frame, maybe they're shorter, right? So the different elements are coming out in this way. Once you know what your constitution is, then you can choose your food and lifestyle in a way that uh, brings balance. So I'll give myself as an example, I have a very dry constitution that's mainly made of air and ether. So they're very dry, cold and light. So the last thing I should do is eat foods which are cold, dry and light. Instead, I need warm, dense, moist, oily foods. For someone who has a lot of earth element, that's the last thing they need. They need light, dry things. So it's a really beautiful way of getting to know yourself, actually, and learning what's best for you. Because every, any kind of item of food is not just standard good or bad. It's going to be good for one person and not as good for another. For sure. I always remember like people always saying, like, chili is really healthy. But if you're chili a, is really healthy. But if you're yeah. a pita, it's really not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think it's it's also really interesting how I mean me me personally I I totally relate to what you're saying and it was really interesting for me to figure out what my own constitution was. Um I think it's also very interesting how our emotion in nature has come into this as well because it's linked and we don't often have the sort of emotional maturity to realize that okay if I'm often feeling anxious it's not necessarily because something's wrong with me or because you know life is not good enough but it's just this is my nature mm-hmm. and I can also balance that nature and also realize that along with the anxiety also comes some benefits of being a more air mm-hmm. and based constitution right like mm-hmm. more inspiration more artistic and and so on um like I have a tendency towards fire so my emotional tendency was always sort of anger and impatience getting overheated mm-hmm. um and it's it's easy to judge that judge yourself for those qualities but when you kind of realize oh this is just an energy and I can I can balance it and I can also channel it for the positive right like that fire also has leadership and mm-hmm. drive and action and confidence um and I think it's really nice to kind of get this lens on yourself as well because it, it kind of takes the heaviness out of this, mm-hmm. these emotions that we feel Yeah, because an imbalance doesn't, it's not necessarily a flaw in your character. And often we think that like, oh, I have an issue with like insecurity and that's my emotional issue and I'm never going to be able to get past it. And it it feels like a battle when actually insecurity is just part of the life of someone who's a, a vata, which is made of air and ether. They're very unstable elements. Of course, there's insecurity. When you think about it, it's only natural. So how can I reduce that insecurity? Not only by, of course, you always have the emotional work on yourself, recognizing patterns, learning how to move past them, but by generally living a lifestyle that reduces vata, you're going to see really huge improvements without feeling like you're battling against that emotion. Mm-hmm. Like for example, um, the herb ashwagandha has become really popular. Nowadays, you can find it even in most big supermarkets. Uh, because ashwagandha is one of the best anti-vata herbs and stress, anxiety and insecurity, which are totally rampant in today's uh, world, are all vata-induced issues, issues. (laughs) I was looking for the word. So 
even if you are not naturally a vata, anyone can be, vata is the most unstable of all of them, right? So even someone who has a pitta fiery nature or a kapha earthy nature, they can still temporarily be swayed off and have their own vata be pushed out of balance and feel overwhelmed by stress and anxiety. And bringing in a herb like ashwagandha and all of the different things that we can do to help a vata, I've found for myself that any anxiety and insecurity that I used to have has just effortlessly come under control because suddenly I found a way to balance the elements in me. And then any insecurity that I still have feels easier for me to tackle with sort of emotional, uh, with a emo- more emotional approach. So it's really just a way of, they're, they're tools to support whatever you're going through. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of ashwagandha. I feel like everyone should just <laughs> take it because um, everyone has some kind of vata issue, at least to a small degree. And anyone, especially who's stressed and anxious, um, could really benefit from all of the vata supportive um, lifestyle mm-hmm. tips. I think it's also one of the things that's fascinating about Ayurveda is how the prescription, so to speak, is not just food. Like, so for example, if you are, let's say, a pitta, fiery character, then it's not just about sort of eating cooling foods, but also doing cooling activities. Mm-hmm. So like maybe vigorous exercise was less healthy <gasps> for a pitta than I'm so glad you've brought a, this up. <laughs> vata, right? Um, it's, it's like sort of the exercise, the even like the the hobbies that you do and so on, the amount of travel, for example, Mm -hmm. is something that really affects your constitution. And these are things that we don't necessarily kind of build and factor into our way of life to bring balance. Mm -hmm. And and it's for me, it's just fascinating because it's so intuitive, like a vata, super unbalanced, super light, super all over the place. Obviously, something like travel is going to be super stressful and ungrounding for Mm -hmm. a vata, but... You get many vatas who just have no idea and have a lifestyle which is like very ungrounding mm-hmm. by its nature. And then we wonder why we're not feeling good and healthy. Yeah, and why we're anxious. Yeah, totally. I'm really glad you brought up the exercise thing because it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine that in the yoga world, it seems like there's a lot of striving to advance and people are wanting to kind of push themselves and to be a better yogi. And... A more advanced practice is not for everyone. In fact, it's actually for a really small part of the population because of the three constitutions, vata, pitta and kapha, kapha being the earthy one is really the only one who does well with vigorous exercise. Actually, they need vigorous exercise because they tend to feel heavy. So they need lightness and movement. So to do a really strong yoga practice for them is fantastic. But for both pitta and vata, so that's like two thirds of the population, it's not, it's actually really not good. A pitta, a fiery person, needs a slow, calming and cooling practice. And a vata person who, as we've said, is already very ungrounded, does best with slow, gentle, warming exercises. Neither a vata nor a pitta should feel hot when they're practicing. Even though vata is cold by nature, they are thrown off balance by anything that's extreme. So even too hot is not good. Too much movement is not good. And in fact, I mean, both of us have been practicing yoga for a really long time. And I've found that even though 
my body is capable of doing a more advanced practice, uh, another part of my body just won't allow it. Like if I start to push myself a little bit in a yoga class to do more, to do another vinyasa or whatever it is, I'll get a headache. My body will tell me, no, like that's not what you need. Even though your ego might be really happy to be doing, you know, this really intense practice and keeping up with everyone else in the class. That's just not what is good for you. It's not, it's not medicinal if you're practicing in that way. So yeah, I mean, when you get to know yourself, you get to know all the things that are good or bad for you. And um, it's really user-friendly in that way. Once you learn just the basics of how it works, you can kind of start to see the elements in everything and start to understand what's going to actually bring you balance. Yeah, and as you said, sort of that, that's why it's such a beautiful tool for helping you go within, right? Because you're, you have a tool to sort of analyze yourself and, and understand yourself better. And yeah, for sure, this is kind of the irony of Western culture and how we take these <laughs> Eastern traditions and somehow manage to bring that competitive individualism <laughs> yeah, <totally. laughs> into it. Um, and it's obviously completely ironic when it comes to yoga because yoga is, I mean, yoga is in a sense an individualistic practice in the sense it's about sort of your own, increasing your own consciousness. But that should very be done within oneself as opposed to sort of looking around and trying to keep up or yeah. trying to you know, achieve um, some pose. And, and it is funny because, you know, on Instagram nowadays, you see a lot of these posts of um, kind of like 2012, my back bend was this deep. And mm-hmm. in 2014, look, I can touch my toes with my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, like for some people, it is good. And it's really beautiful to master your body in that way. Mm-hmm. But again, it is a vocation for a few people. And for the rest of us, we can get so much out of yoga from just a very kind of within ourselves mm-hmm. practice and, and it's so much more actually than where the poses are going to take us and maybe that's a really nice way we can segue into the link like deeper links between Ayurveda and yoga yeah actually Ayurveda and yoga just cannot be separated they're they're part of they're two faces of the same coin um because the way you practice your yoga is the way you live your life. So it's, you know, Ayurveda, the wisdom of life. They're, they're one thing. Um, I was going to say something before and I forgot what it was now. I, I wanted to say that yoga is a practice, not a goal. It's not, the point of practicing is not to advance, but just to practice, to be in that moment, connecting with your body, your breath, your consciousness. It's not about where it goes and and what you achieve. In fact, like if you're stuck on that, then you're not really practicing yoga. The point is to be in the present moment. These are actually the exact things that we need to see to grow, right? Because it's it's very productive, actually, to be kind of sitting on your mat and and trying to force yourself into another pose and actually noticing it Mm. and going like, oh, wow, like what is this part of me? that feels that I need to be more flexible than I actually am. Yeah. Like, this is quite an erotic thought. <laughs> Where does this come from? And, and I think this is like the sort of mental and emotional side of the healing, which yeah. I understand why we don't give it as much importance because it is so much harder mm-hmm. to kind of grapple with who we are, who our mental and emotional selves are, as opposed to our physical selves, which, mm-hmm. we, can, which we can touch and feel are. 
but me personally i'm just i i'm becoming a bit radical <laughs> in the sense of like just the more i see how important it is and how much even physical symptoms in the body can change just from changing how you feel and to do that we do have to have a bit of this kind of bravery to just say i'm going to see it because it is uncomfortable to see that part of us mm-hmm. which does want to compete and does yeah. want to be as good as everybody else it's that we're just in the west so used to being achievers we're raised that way right we're raised in as individuals who are meant to go through life and achieve achieve something and make something of yourself so when you take that attitude which we all you know whether we're aware of it or not subconsciously that's just the way that our society makes us think so if we take that mentality and we put it into an eastern practice and in the east people I should say where not, because I think the world is changing and I, I don't, you know, I don't know what the current situation is in the change of culture. But certainly when yoga was developed, they were not of the same mentality at all. So it's obvious that, you know, people like us are going to go to that practice and then be like, OK, I want to get better. I want to now I want to teach. And now everyone wants to teach, because if you're a teacher, then you're a master. And we're always just trying to climb the ladder. And we're obsessed with this ladder in our culture, whether it's like the academic ladder or the business ladder. Or now we have the yoga ladder. And it's just hilarious because the point is is not to achieve. And I say this falling, falling into that habit myself. You know, I, I don't mean it as a criticism. I'm, it's more a an observation of a Western psyche going through these Eastern practices and kind of losing, missing the point very often. In fact, um, meditation in, in Ayurvedic recommendations is far more important than the physical yoga is. Um, and somehow in the West, that part, you know, it's still, it's still a lot more popular than it used to be. It's still definitely, um, kind of yeah gaining popularity but nowhere near as much as the physical part that's easier for us to uh to practice because we feel like we're doing something and don't we love in the west to do things we have a harder time with just sitting and being in fact it's so common to go to a yoga class and for it to just end and you walk out the door and actually the whole point of the physical practice is to prepare you for the meditation so it makes more sense to do sort of a 20 minute yoga physical part and then 40 minutes of <laughs> meditation but we, we don't do that no students yes that. we <laughs> would because that's just not what the western psyche is comfortable with but that is what would benefit us so i think like if anyone is listening and is intrigued about starting any of these i would say meditation should be the priority and yoga should be there to support that meditation practice rather than the other way around I think this is kind of a problem with meditation is that we don't there aren't a lot of meditation teachers actually like all of the meditation teachers out there are actually just yoga teachers Mm -hmm. who are teaching meditation which is not the same thing it's not the same thing and most of them do not meditate for much time per day if they even do it daily Mm. um and I understand why, because it's, it's very hard to live a modern life and meditate on a daily basis. Um, it really takes quite an extraordinary amount of discipline to do. Um, but I, th- I feel like there's definitely a lack of guidance in what is the best way to meditate as well. Because obviously, like po- anything being popularized, it's, it's, it's a kind of catch-22, right? Like, on, on one side, I don't know if catch-22 is the right word, what I'm trying to say is, like, on one side, it's so good, right, that meditation is becoming more popular. 
But the cost of that is obviously the the teachings get diluted. Mm-hmm. So something like Headspace, which is on one side, I'm like, this is amazing, right? Like this is an app which is so approachable. Approachable. It's mm. like bringing meditation to the masses. How amazing. But if you actually go in and listen to the meditations, the quality of them is not that high. And it kind of has to be that way, right? Because to be palatable for, for most beginners and most entry-level people, it, it's kind of yeah. part of it, right? It's also, we have to keep in mind that most of those apps and videos and audio recordings or whatever of medita- guided meditations are pretty much always aimed at beginners because once you're done with being a beginner, you're usually happy to meditate without any guidance at that point, or one would hope. So obviously anything that you hear is going to be very sort of entry level, um, but it, it's meant to be, it has to be, yeah, it has to be approachable. And But at the same time, it's like bringing meditation to people in a way that has taken it quite far away from its essence. Like most meditations nowadays are actually visualizations, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you go into Headspace, it's pretty much 90% visualizations, which is fine and visualizations are good. Um, but that's not meditation. Yeah. Meditation is something else. Um, many meditations nowadays are actually relaxations. Relaxations are great. I'm all for relaxations, but it's not meditation. Yeah. So I think we're kind of in this problem where it's it's not that easy to find really good guidance for a meditation practice. And I mean, I obviously am a little bit biased from my own experience that I really believe in having a physical teacher to guide us and whatever, whether it be Ayurveda or meditation and, and so on. But I think the matters of the inner world, it becomes ever more important because mm-hmm. it's it's a subject that is much harder to learn from a book. Yeah. Like if you wanted to learn the herbs, like let's say there are a hundred herbs in Ayurveda, you wanted to learn their names and their uses, you could go and learn that from a book. Mm-hmm. But if you had a human being in front of you and you're new, that book is not going to help you. You Mm -hmm. need the guidance of someone who has experienced enough people to be able to say, okay, that person in this situation, Mm -hmm. you need to watch out for these things and kind of bring... Someone who has the experience. In fact, uh, just sorry, as a side note, on my course, that's that's a part that I'm really enjoying because, yeah, you could look up online like any herb and get all the information that I'm getting on my course. But what I really love is that my teacher's been practicing for like 40 years and he's like, you know... Ayurveda classifies this herb as hot, but in my opinion, it's a very mild heat. So honestly, even someone who's uh, already quite hot can handle this herb. So sort of from his experience, he's saying like, look, I've observed this in use over the 40 years and sort of it's not as black and white as that. And he'll give his experience and that's really amazing. That's priceless. That is priceless. And I think that is what we're missing also in spirituality. And now we're getting dangerously close to my pet peeve, (laughs) 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 which is kind of our conflict with authority figures, right? And teachers in general. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you said, sort of when it comes to yoga, like everyone wants to be a teacher, but no one really wants to be a student. Totally. And no one really wants to be devoted enough to a teacher to actually be able to have a transmission of that knowledge Mm -hmm. to be able to... and. And I think it also has something to do with the reason people are meditating, because since now Western science has started to study meditation and to prove its health benefits, a lot of people are drawn to meditate more for the health benefits, for the, you know, the peace, the being able to cope with stress and all of that. They're not necessarily doing it for a spiritual experience. Maybe they're a bit intrigued, but it's, it's usually 
what I'm finding, at least in people, is they're more attracted to how it affects their well-being, which is a great, you know, a great thing that meditation has to offer. And it's worth doing it even just for that. But that's not the purpose, the ultimate purpose of it. And, And I think most of us in the West miss that. We missed the point again with, with that. I don't know if you saw that um, post that I, I did on my stories the other day. Um, it was quite a, an interesting I think quote. I, I think I know what you're talking about. Do you have it so saved? It says, uh-huh, it says um, yoga is being used to cultivate your six-pack. Manifestation <laughs> techniques are being exploited for your ego's material desires. Energy healing is now a tool to prey upon the sick and vulnerable, and plant medicine is now being used to hijack your way to spiritual experiences without any of the inner and shadow work. Um, spot on. It is sadly spot on. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, we're generalizing here, but this is kind of, again, a product of these Eastern practices coming into the West. And, you know, manifestation is another reason why people come to meditation. Like, mm-hmm. I want to you know, manifest the partner of my dreams or like the job of my dreams. And again, I have nothing against that. Like, I think it's beautiful to put a little bit of your creative energy to creating a life that you're happy with. But again, like what he, what I loved about what he said there was the avoiding of the shadow work, Mm. because there is a part of us that wants to call in things, not for our soul, but for our ego. Mm -hmm. And it's so difficult to kind of have enough honesty within yourself to actually say the truth about (laughs) certain things that you want to call into your life. And I think this is where having a a teacher obviously really, it doesn't have to be like a teacher in a formal sense, right? But even, even just a friend or like someone. Someone you trust to give guidance. Someone you trust to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. obviously as they see it and obviously ideally sort of the clearer their lens is the better right because mm-hmm. we all have friends who sort of mean well to give us advice but their lens is colored by their own mm-hmm. traumas and their own baggage so in fact not only you know in the west we have a hard time with this idea of being students spiritual students often because we have a real lack of trust to finding the right teacher and i think that's probably an obstacle I feel like people would be more open to having a teacher of some kind if there was, if if they found it easier to trust. Obviously, that's a product of there not being that many good teachers around. Yeah. So we're kind of right not to trust, right? Because, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't say necessarily, like, I wouldn't limit it to a spiritual student. I would even say, like, just psychologically, mm-hmm. right? Like, even if you don't believe in God and you're not after the spiritual experience, I think sort of opening yourself up as a student of yourself, even just from a purely mm. psychological... To learn from your own emotions and things. To learn you who mean? you are and why you're mm. driven, why you feel the way you do, all of this sort of thing, which I think is is the perfect antidote yeah, to absolutely. the stresses and burdens of the modern life. I think opening yourself up as a student in that perspective, not even just spiritually, I think it's it's actually crucial to our well-being. Yeah. And as I said, I, I understand why many people struggle with it because the truth is it's difficult to find a guide who has had their, who has done enough of their own work that their lens with which they see you is clean, it's mm-hmm. pure and, and but, they don't bring their own agendas. But we also don't really have a model for this in the West because like, okay, in the East, you would have your guru and your guru would fulfill both the spiritual guidance and probably a lot of the emotional guidance too, right? And psychological. Funnily enough, but, it's actually not, right? And this is um, 
one of the problems with the Eastern system is that the role of the guru is actually not to give you psychological support. The role of the guru is to transmit spiritual power. Now that spiritual power can give you revelation of your own nature and your own psyche. But if you kind of go through the tradition, this is one part where the East sort of has a, a slight missing because then who is that psychological guy exactly. who is that we don't have a model for that in the west we have therapists for that but it's not uh there's i mean the taboo has really really changed already but it's not changed that much that like everyone goes to therapy so it's not like everyone has that one person that they turn to for for this so well, i think stuff. it's not supposed to be one person right like i think we're supposed to have many people and i know like for for myself my teacher is my spiritual guide, but I don't go to him for psychological issues, right? I've had other mentors in my life and I have friends who I sort of share my burdens with. And mm. I also kind of have a, enough self-awareness and I've done enough practices to be able to kind of find my way out of my corners that I somehow managed to lock myself into. Um, but I think you're right to point that we don't have a model. Um, and I think... That is a problem, right? Because a lot of psychologists and psychotherapists haven't necessarily done the inner work themselves. Um, I had a conversation on the podcast last time with Santina, who is a, a, becoming a friend, um, and I love her perspective on this. And she was sharing how many of um, the work environments that she is in, she's working with addiction, yet in their sort of meetings and so on there's a lot of addiction mm. in there right mm. um and and so this is not to like sort of insult psychotherapists because there are a lot of amazing ones out there but the truth is that the burden that they have on themselves to like deal with their own stuff and then support everyone else like it's 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 quite a lot you know so perfection is is never going to be there mm -hmm. so i think we need to take the ownership and and also not burden sort of the full responsibility of our soul and our psyche onto one person but mm. take take the reflection of those people who mirror back to us and and in this case it can be anyone right like you can have an argument at the supermarket and in that moment that person is your mirror and I think more than just kind of clinging to the idea that okay the, the sort of teacher has to be in one body it's more kind of going into the mindset of what the student is and how we can be receptive to that feedback and I think that's that's where we struggle the most mm. I mean I think our feedback is any kind of emotion where we feel stuck right because let's say uh, yeah you have an issue with someone in, in your life a friend or whatever your emotions around them are showing you, like if you're feeling, you know, resentment or you're thinking negatively about them or there's just some kind of darkness associated with them, our habit might be to say, oh, they, and sort of put it on them. But actually those emotions are showing you that you are stuck somewhere, right? So it's actually not about them. And it's like, what is this person or this situation trying to show me? Why am I stuck here? What am I holding on to? And very often it's, it's our own desire to be perfect and we realize that we're not i mean I, i've had many of these <laughs> realizations yeah. like oh shit obviously I'm not. you're at the stage where you can actually say like have that awareness because many people would never even get to that stage of even noticing that there's a problem right a lot of people hurt others with their words or their behaviors and they don't even realize that they're causing themselves or others suffering and yeah. then we sort of numb with alcohol and and so on 
Um, but I think, I don't know, I just finished teaching this, well, teaching hosting, um, this my four month holding space course. Um, and it was really obviously a beautiful experience and In the Holding Space course, um, we delved into four key archetypes that everyone has. And I, I got these from Caroline Mace, who's an author that we both love. And she basically talked about how we all have the child, the victim, the prostitute and the saboteur. Like those are four key archetypes that we all have. And then there are another eight that you can sort of figure out like, okay, these are my other archetypes. But th those four we all have. And I was really thinking this week that actually the student archetype is another archetype that we actually all share. Mm. Like no one can escape being the student at some point in their life. We all go to school. Yeah. We have you, to learn about life. Even kids that don't go ways. to school in like certain countries, yeah, yeah. they're still a student of their parents. Yeah. Right? And, and I just had this sort of thought of how interesting. This is another archetype that we all share, yet we do it so unconsciously. We never say like, okay, how can I be the best student? Mm -hmm. We just sort of... We're eager to become the teacher. That's why we're eager to like breeze past the student phase as, as soon as possible and become the master and the teacher. And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to progress and learn more, but the point shouldn't be to achieve. Again, we're going back to that same old model that we the have. The best teachers are the best students. Yeah. How, how can I learn this uh, thoroughly? and well and authentically yeah, and I think actually the best teachers never want to teach yeah <laughs> I think they're so yeah. sort of happy in, being in a fact, student <laughs> if I can give an example from my life when I decided to do my yoga training um I did it purpose uh I did it solely because my favorite yoga teacher was leaving the island and I was just so gutted because she was one of the few who was putting meditation and spirituality into the yoga uh room which is totally where it belongs and uh, so I was sort of like, I, I, I really want you to teach me before you go. I, I need to absorb all of your knowledge. And she was like, oh, no, like, I don't, I don't do that. And I was really persistent and she rejected me multiple times because that's just not what she did and not what she was interested in. Uh, and then I, I just kind of forced her. <laughs> I wore her down and we did our training one-on-one -on -one together. And that then made her realize, oh, actually this is something that feels right and it feels good. And now she offers yoga teacher trainings. Um, so there's actually a lot of stories in the yoga tradition of exactly this, of like the student going to the teacher, the teacher being like, no, I don't want to teach you, like get lost, like go away. And the student having to be really persistent. Yeah. And that persistence kind of proving that they're in it kind of for the right reasons. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I think it's it's super beautiful. And, and I just go back to this of like, the best student make the best teacher. And I know from my own life also that when I first came onto this path, I wanted to be a teacher. Mm. Like I remember teaching meditation before. I can say now that I didn't know anything about meditation <laughs> when I started teaching meditation with a classic pitta overconfidence. <laughs> um, Definitely and, a fiery quality. Uh, um, and the funny thing is like the more I've progressed, the less I've wanted to teach. Yeah which has been quite interesting. And I don't say this in a like that I don't enjoy teaching because I do love it. And, and I do love, you know, sharing all of the knowledge that I've um, you experienced. Have, you have less attachment to it. You're not like 
wanting to be yes. and trying to it's be. It's like I don't want to or need to, but I can if that's what I'm being called to do. Yeah, kind if of that's thing. what happens uh, naturally. <laughs> yes, and I think that's... I don't say this now because like, it's like I'm saying that about this about myself. <laughs> but like I think the good teachers do have that quality where they're, it, they're not in it to teach. Yeah. You know, they're in it to learn for themselves. And of course... And to, and to live it, to be to the example exactly. of But then it. obviously that has to overspill and other people are going to see that and be like, oh, I want to learn from that. Please teach me. Mm. Um, but again, going back to the whole student thing, we've forgotten how to be students. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where... Ayurveda is a really beautiful tool because it kind of takes you back into that thing of like, okay, now I have to be receptive because mm-hmm. I need to. Oh, wow. Ayurveda really teaches you to be receptive. Absolutely. Because it really, it really teaches you to get to know your, your body and your psyche because in Ayurveda, they're, they're the same thing. And um, again, this is something that we've lost in the West. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you had it a lot more naturally than I did. It's something I had to learn. So obviously, different people out there start life with a different nature of how mm-hmm. easy it is to be receptive. But I think we live in a world that it's so easy to be busy, to be distracted, to be numb, and to be disconnected from how we really feel. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the number one qualities of being a student of life and of Ayurveda and of ourselves is like, okay, we need to feel because that's the data, right? Like yeah. if you can't feel your body, you have no data. Yeah. That's why we have senses <laughs> to feel. <laughs> if you had, one. if you had no senses, you would have no experience of being here. So, but yeah, those senses can be really easily assaulted and uh, overstimulated and again in, in the modern world unfortunately the lifestyle very much is that way very overstimulating and um, that that over time does numb us because if you're it's like if you're uh, in a really noisy place right and when you first arrive you're like oh it's noisy in here and then after a while it just becomes background noise and you don't you hear it but it's very much in the background and you're just focused on your conversation with someone overstimulation is a lot like that is that at first you feel it and then if it keeps going your body will learn it's it's such a miraculous machine that it will learn to uh, adapt around that but until you burn out <laughs> until you burn out yeah it does have its repercussions so uh learning how to you know try and be less stimulated get a bit more sensitive and really feel your body and your mind you will start to understand so much more about yourself and the the healthy choices will be much more uh, alluring because you get used to feeling sensitive and then whenever you're out of balance you you know what it feels like to be balanced right so as soon as you start to go out of balance you know that you don't like that and you're going to do the things that bring the balance back in this is so. such a good point because it is a matter of taste in fact like there is this thing in the in the food world right that like whatever you feel that's what your body needs. So if I feel like an ice cream, it must be what my body needs. <laughs> um, and I love this point because this is this is the, like when we're used to feeling out of balance, we will crave things that take us out of balance. And when we're used to feeling imbalanced, we will crave those things that balance us. And I think this is why it's a bit of a struggle in the very beginning to make healthy lifestyle changes because we don't have the taste of how good it feels. Mm-hmm. We're, we're making these choices without that 
that driver really of knowing yeah. how good these yeah. choices are Absolutely. gonna make us feel. Most people don't know how good they should feel actually and I myself was shocked the first time and you know in the early days when I was getting into nutrition I had done this sugar cleanse sugar in Ayurveda is cooling and I have already a cold nature so I didn't know that that was the case I did a sugar cleanse because everyone knows sugar is not good for you and I mean after two weeks I felt ecstatic I felt I had energy I felt clean and my mind was clear and I was happy naturally for no reason and I was honestly quite shocked I was like I did not need a reason to be happy no but I didn't realize (laughs) that I was capable of feeling that good you don't realize that your body wants you to feel good if you know how to make it that way you and your body are like a team you know it gives you and you give it um once I had that that feeling like, okay, this is what health is. This is how I'm supposed to feel. So anything that makes me not feel like that is not good for me. So then if I go through a phase of, you know, I don't know, I'm stressed and suddenly I start eating sugar again or coffee or whatever your vice is, you'll look back at that time when you felt good and you're like, oh, that that's how I'm meant to be. So it gets much easier to get back to that place because you know that it's worth it. It's really hard to give up things that, that we love. You know, it's hard. I love sugar to this day. It's hard for me to avoid it. Um, so you need to have a really good incentive in order to do that. And building up your willpower is is difficult unless you know that it's worth it. So people need to first get a taste of that wellness feeling um, in order to yeah make it worth giving up all the stuff that they that they love and you you love it on a really superficial level because then once it's gone and you feel really good you're like you know what I really don't want it actually anymore the desire just goes away and it gets easier but um yeah the the beginning bit is definitely requires a lot of discipline in fact that's the hardest part of Ayurveda is getting people to comply because um it's one thing to tell people that they should avoid this this and this it's another thing to get them to do it. And especially the herbs, as miraculous as they are, most of the time they taste terrible. So you have to find a way to build up that willpower and get through just the beginning bit and then it gets easier. Yeah, I, Obviously at the moment there's so much suffering out there with stress and stress-related diseases that at least it's kind of forcing us to get to that point of like okay I need to make some serious changes and and the willpower kind of comes a bit naturally but obviously the nervous system the overstimulation of the nervous system I think is a huge problem that not really many people are talking about I have only identified it as a huge problem through my own experience and when I went through my burnout um I felt like I came out of it with a different nervous system Mm -hmm. I feel like my nervous system is never going to be the same. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's also just part of kind of deeper changes in my life and how I live and, and so on, and like an increased sensitivity in general. But I've become very hyper aware of my nervous system mm-hmm. and what state it's in. When I'm overstimulated, I can really feel it mm-hmm. um, a lot earlier. And I know kind of what I have to do to balance it, even though sometimes I choose not to do that. <laughs> and I just keep 
I wrote on my Instagram sometimes that like I mean I feel like I'm having a conversation with my nervous system and <laughs> so I have to listen to it and sometimes it's guiding me but sometimes I just like ignore it and try to eke out a little bit more energy even though I clearly know that I'm gonna pay the price for this yeah um, but that is that is the modern word that sometimes we're just yes, in a situation is. where we're like I just need to get through this last meeting or, or whatever yeah whatever it is and in fact we need to be a bit easy on ourselves because you know, modern life does often require you to just push past. And it's really easy for me to sit here and be like, everyone should take time out and everyone should eat this and this. I know that it's not that simple and it's not that easy for most people. If you have, you know, financial commitments, a job, a lot of responsibility, you can't just blow that all off to to go on a two-week retreat and cleanse or whatever <laughs> it is, you know. So, it's more about finding those daily tools that are going to support the fact that you do need to put out that energy. There are definitely things you can do to to help sustain that and to make sure that your nervous system is not going to be taxed by it all. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pour a little bit of tea on that note. Of Let's daily do it. Tools. <laughs> <laughs> We're both tea lovers. Uh, in fact, uh, caffeine. Uh, especially in the form of coffee, which is a really in, uh, strong and intense uh, kick of caffeine, is um, in Ayurveda only recommended to a kapha person who, you know, the earthy, watery type people. Again, the, the more heavy, lethargic people, because they they are the only ones who do need very stimulation. frequent stimulation. So stimulants and activity, movement, exercise, it's great for all of them. But again, that's like a third of the society, right? And coffee is pretty much on most people's daily consumption list. So, um, I mean, I have to say that since I stopped drinking coffee, I feel a lot better. Yeah. Um, having said that, when I was feeling like that I was pushing the burnout limits um, in this last couple of months... Um, I felt that the coffee was uh, the tea was also yes. too stimulating. I mean, it, it's definitely still <clears throat> even in for Ayurveda, even tea is a bit too stimulating for a vata and a pitta type of person. But it's definitely better drinking tea than coffee because those stimulants are released a lot slower. It's kind of like eating brown bread instead of white bread. It's that same idea. Yeah. Uh, I think there's also something a bit magical about tea in general, like as a medicine, as a spiritual medicine that kind of goes beyond just the physical absolutely aspect of the body it's it's kind of hard to describe without sounding like a totally esoteric hippie <laughs> totally um, uh, <laughs> but there is a medicine in tea definitely that kind of connects you to nature and and i've found that i do have to be careful when i am overstimulated that i mm-hmm. I, I definitely tone down on the tea um, but generally, as as a whole, I find it very, very medicinal for me. Absolutely. You should pass your bow. Oh, yeah. There you go. Um, I have sat in tea ceremony with so many people who are not necessarily into spirituality much. I mean, it, it's a very approachable practice. And yeah, I've had countless sessions with people who are not necessarily into it. And they are always really surprised that by the end of it they're like wow I can't believe that we're just drinking tea it has such a transformational potential when it's drank in in that setting uh it's almost shocking and talking about it sound you sound a bit ridiculous talking about it because it really is just tea and we just sit there in silence and drink tea but when you experience it you you can understand that it's 
it's really phenomenal, actually. Yeah, I mean, my brain still can't quite comprehend some of the tea experiences I've had <laughs> in this time. I think since in September, last September, I started drinking tea very, very regularly. And some of the experiences I've had, I have to say that there is a huge difference between drinking tea casually, like how we're doing now, and actually having a full ceremony. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and that has been, I think, one of the biggest lessons for me this year, because I've been drinking a lot of casual tea. Um, which has been beautiful and it's been nice in its own way and sort of being going into that student mentality because tea is such a vast world Mm -hmm. like each tea is brewed differently every single tea it's not just like oolongs are brewed like this pues are like every single tea has to be brewed particularly so you're kind of coming into an intimate relationship with that particular tea Um, so there's a lot to learn and you can only learn by drinking a lot of tea Mm -hmm. um but for me, it's been phenomenal, the quality of the experience when you're just drinking it casually and when you're actually putting enough devotion in to like actually do the whole ceremony and wash all of your teaware and sit in silence. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never had a casual tea experience, but one time where I had a deep spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. Whereas in every single other time that I've drunk tea in ceremony, I've had a deep spiritual experience. <laughs> So, I mean, that that in itself blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the same tea, same water, same bowl, same teapot. But intention and, and ritual are so powerful. I mean, it, it, there's definitely a power in the tea itself that changes your consciousness in that moment. Um, but the ritual itself. And, you know, again, in the West, we're we're a bit spiritual, spiritually lost in the sense that, you know, a lot of people have really lost their faith in, in the church. And, you know, which in many ways is unfortunate because the teachings of Christianity are, to their essence, incredibly beautiful and powerful. But the church as an institution and as a leader is really losing uh, popularity. And without anything else to replace that, all of the rituals and ceremonies that we're used to getting from from that, we now don't have. And as humans, we still have that desire. Ritual is very important. It's been part of the human journey since the beginning. So we need it. And I think that's why when people come to a tea ceremony, often in their first tea ceremony, there'll be a lot of tears because it's like they feel at home and they didn't realize that that was missing, that that feeling that you get when you're in some kind of ritual has been missing. And you didn't even realize that you desired it until you were there. And then you were like, oh my God, I'm, I'm home. And wow, it's just, <laughs> we need that. It's, it's therapeutic. Totally. That's how I felt in my first tea. I just cried. Yeah, <laughs> I cried. Actually, Yasmin's first tea was with me and with a mutual friend of ours, Srimati, who's also been on your podcast, I yes, believe, right? Yes. Uh, she was the person who introduced both of us to tea and it was the three of us. We didn't even know what it was, right? She just came downstairs. It was the night before well, one of our retreats. She tea, but we had no idea what we were getting ourselves Yeah, she, there wasn't like an instruction. She just kind of like sat down in silence and we were following her lead. And, you know, within sort of 10 minutes, all three of us were in tears. And I, I remember picking up an instrument and singing and suddenly there was a big thunderstorm. It was the end of summer and... We were after that both like, whoa, <laughs> I cannot believe that tea did that and ritual. So yeah, it's something I highly encourage people to experience. It doesn't totally fit in with the Ayurvedic guidelines at all. But I, I think for moments like that, 
you you're mean exempt due to the caffeine. Due to the caffeine, yeah. But I would say for moments like that, the spiritual potency that it gives you trumps the fact that it has caffeine. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, the beauty of the human experience because as much as we have structures and rules, I think for our own individual soul, we also need to break the rules sometimes, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> totally. And actually there is some form of order because in the Chinese medical system, which is very closely related to Ayurveda, but it does have some differences um, because tea comes originally from China, right? So in the Chinese medical world, they have a way of understanding which elements are most present in all the different types of tea. So there is also a way to, okay, if you need more earth, there are earthy teas. If you need more air, there are airy teas. So that can also play a part. You can Mm -hmm. totally learn the elements in the tea and that helps. I mean, just as we were talking before we actually started recording, (laughs) I I learned about these, the, the elements of Chinese medicine and which teas go with which element. And... I had only ever dr- drunk one kind of tea and I'd only ever really drunk tea in winter. And I was drinking a lot of tea in winter, especially the warming, earthy, grounding, fiery, warming teas. Um, and then it got to spring and I was really attached to those teas because I liked the taste and wanted to keep drinking them. But very naturally, my body just stopped desiring them and I started desiring naturally the teas mm. that I had been told are good in spring. That's beautiful. And, and it, it shows to, it, it goes to what we were saying before of the sensitivity. When you're sensitive enough, you can feel those subtle differences. Yeah. And, and to be honest, this is, uh, I think, one of the biggest gifts that tea has given me. Because I remember in the beginning reading about tea and, and hearing how the tea masters can taste the different waters mm-hmm. and actually taste the year of the tea and the place of the tea. And I remember thinking, like, how on uh, is it possible <laughs> to drink a cup of tea and know that it's from this year or this um, tea mountain? You know? Yeah. Um, and I'm, I, I'm still nowhere near that. But I can taste the different waters. I can taste when they're oversteeped. I can I can drink a, a pu'er now and know whether it's old or young, if it's show or if it's, mm-hmm. if it's raw or if it's cooked. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in itself has given me a lot of pleasure because you're just like... Again, you're going into that receptivity and receiving the flavors and the, the spirit of the tea and and being able to actually understand and, and, and communicate with it in, in a, without, again, sounding too weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is, it is definitely the different teas do balance and bring different elements into the body, which for me, it's been really nice to just notice my body enjoying those teas that are more balancing yeah. naturally without even consciously sort of choosing to I remember being like oh I really like this tea and then going back to check like oh yeah this is a tea for this time you know so it wasn't even like I'm programming myself like I just forgot I was trying different things like this one's the one that I I like at the moment and and then you realize oh yeah (laughs) it's really really nice yeah that's really amazing so you host tea ceremonies here right so if anyone is is uh intrigued after Uh, this to be honest because it's so hot um uh it's a bit more of a challenge to host tea ceremonies. I don't have much experience with the cooler teas, like the green teas. I haven't really brewed them much, so I don't really feel confident to mm-hmm. to brew them in ceremony. Um, but definitely towards the end of summer, like September, October, I'm going to be doing a lot of tea at Sanya just because I just love it. Mm-hmm. I honestly love it. It's such an. I would really highly recommend it to everyone. It's such an amazing space to be part of. 
Yeah, so my plan is to have some weekend ceremonies, but also some midweek, early morning, before work ceremonies. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's just an amazing way to start your work day. Yeah, totally. Just like a 7 a.m. Instead of your coffee, 30. coffee morning, you have your Definitely. tea morning. You'll go to work supercharged. <laughs> um, at this point, I would like to share a, a bit. I have a little announcement yes. <laughs> um, because tea has also touched my life so much. And for me... <clears throat> A really big part of the ceremony is listening to particular music, which really heightens the experience too. And for the last couple of years, most of my inspiration for music has really come from my ceremonies, from listening to music in that receptive state. And so this time that I've been in Bali just, just recently, I was focusing on recording uh, an EP of three. I'm still deciding if I'm going to add a fourth songs um and they are really aimed and intended to be played in in not just tea ceremony but in ceremonial spaces i'd say i'm very unhappy about this that i haven't been given a sneak peek into <laughs> any of this music as your sister actually the only person who has had a sneak peek is Ali Kalashone, who's a good friend of mine and an artist, because I asked her to do the artwork for me. So I sent her the music for her to listen to while she was painting. And um, she just got back to me recently with the art. So I'm actually ready to release pretty soon. Um, I won't announce an official date because then I'll be stuck to it. But um, I'm pretty much ready to go very really, soon. Really happy to hear that because we use <clears throat> we use your playlist, actually, the, the playlist that you compiled, which has some of your own music and some other people's music. We use that in all of our tea ceremonies here. Mm -hmm. And um, we had this beautiful uh, moment. I'm not sure if it was in the last retreat or the one before where I always put it on shuffle and I just mm -hmm. let the music kind of go. And right at the end, in like the last um, bowl, your your song came on. Yeah. And literally, as soon as like I washed the last bowl and like said like the ceremony is finished, the song just went... Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. It literally, like, the song just finished in the exact second that the ceremony was done. And it was just... I love to be with so you beautiful. in spirit in that way. Actually, that's one of my favorite things is when someone will send me a message or post, like, an Instagram story or something, playing my music in their ceremonies, not just tea ceremony, but... And that really makes me happy because my, <clears throat> my intention as a musician has never really been to reach the masses, you know, my music is very niche. So I know that I'm not going to be like on MTV and I don't desire to at all. Um, instead, what I strive is to just touch a few people in a deep way and have my music played in those kinds of settings. So that just makes me really, really happy. Um, I, for me personally, I, I prefer music that doesn't have any or at least many words in it um and so this upcoming ep doesn't have any words and it's it's very much more like a soundscape i guess very meditative it's uh, very interesting actually the whole music without words thing and the music with words like there is a huge difference yeah totally especially in ritual mm -hmm. and especially if you speak the language of those words in fact previously a lot of my music was either in sanskrit or in arabic or gurumukhi because I don't want to uh, stimulate people's mind. active mind, exactly. I don't want them to think about what the lyrics mean, even though with mantra there is definitely an importance to the meaning and there's, you know, a layer of that. But in meditation, we're trying to do the exact opposite, right? We're trying to, like, calm the mind, tell it it can have a break and just be. 
And so music without words is definitely more effective for that. It, you know, music, music is, is beyond words, literally. In fact, it's funny because I'm currently um, working on a project, making some music for a video. And it's, it's very much not my style. My natural style of music is very upbeat, very electronic, but, you know, it's what the client wants and that's my job. And I'm working with a team who are telling me like, okay, at second uh, 36, we want a, an instrument. And I'm like, okay, what? And they're like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, you know, to capture this emotion or to... And it's really difficult to put in words. Like music just gives you a feeling. It just gives you an emotion you cannot describe it in words and that's the whole point so listening to music that just makes you feel things without you necessarily attaching a thought to it is a really beautiful and important practice because again in the west we're we're just so in our minds all the time so it's nice to just take a break from that every now and then um, I need to be careful not to slip into a whole new podcast episode here. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it feels like we could just because, start uh, because an hour obviously, in. Obviously, like I've been doing a lot more breath work recently, and mm-hmm. the role of breath of music and breath work is so huge. Crucial. I mean, you couldn't do it without. You actually. couldn't do it without it. Well, you could, but it's much more effective with with the music, and um, it's very interesting to see the different emotions of the different songs and how to kind of curate someone's experience through mm-hmm. the music and there is a, a very big distinction then between the words and the non-words you really you really feel it in that context yeah for sure so yeah, i'm excited to share Congratulations. my non-wordy music i really look forward to playing your music here um i'll probably be sick of it after one month <laughs> i'll be playing it so much no i'm still not sick of all your first album and i've heard them many a times a lot. Sweet. <laughs> my biggest fan um Actually, I'm, to tell you the truth, a little bit more nervous about releasing this this EP than I have been in the past. It's always nerve-wracking because you're sharing something that's very intimate uh, with the world and suddenly it's out there um, in everyone else's hands and so obviously you're vulnerable to people's judgments and criticism. So that that's always a part of the creative process, which is challenging. Um, but... In this case, I'm even more nervous because I've actually produced it myself as well. And that's the first time I've done that. Uh, And I'm a lot more confident as a singer than as a producer. So um, I'm both excited and like a little bit scared (laughs) to share that with the world. I'm sure most of your audience do not have anywhere near like the knowledge of music and the nuances of music productions. So. Yeah, but of course you, you always yeah. want to do the, the best job that you can do, you sure, know. That's great. Um, we should also probably mention that the, the reason why we sat down today to discuss Ayurveda is because we are going to start offering Ayurvedic services at Sanya. Yeah. We haven't figured out when or how or what, <laughs> but we do know that we want to be able to support people um, I'm speaking for both of us here, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, to be able to understand their constitutions better and how to live accordance with Ayurvedic principles and, and what herbs you can use to kind of treat any acute um, conditions that you're experiencing. So stay tuned for more info about that. And if you do want this, then just it would be lovely to hear from you and just say like, yes, because the more we hear from people that this is something that you want and that you're interested in, the quicker we'll get our act together and actually kind of flesh out, you know, what a program would look like and what the consultation services would look like. But we're very excited mainly because we have 
such an amazing gift here at Sanya with the space, you know, with the saunas, with the floating tank, with the yoga studio, with the different treatments. We have an amazing new Ayurvedic therapist from Kerala who's just uh, joined the team. So we have a lot that can actually offer a very holistic um, service when it comes to Ayurveda. It's not just you go and sit in a room and, and get told what to eat. Like we can actually really give you the experience. There's, you know, detox practices like Panchakarma, which are really, really helpful for treating certain conditions. So I've always felt like Ayurveda is like the missing link at Sanya. Mm-hmm. It's always that thing that I really wanted to bring in. But I, rightly or wrongly, I have always been very cautious about adding new services to Sanya. The reality is that I could have added a lot of services. And I, I get asked by therapists all the time to come and practice here. Um, but going back to that quote I read, you know, where a lot of the time these healing practices are... I don't want to say that people pray on the vulnerable because that's maybe a bit too harsh, but I feel like the quality of training that many practitioners have to do, especially in water, there's no regulation. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no regulation to be a naturopath, to be a yoga teacher. You know, it's it's quite pathetic. So basically anyone can go and do a weekend training in Reiki and now be practicing Reiki on people. And I have always been extra overcautious and only ever introduced a service when I'm extremely confident in the practitioner who is providing that service. Mm-hmm. So that has kind of been a disadvantage because it means we have less services and less people because obviously the more practitioners, the more people they're going to attract. But I always wanted to like really go with the quality. And I'm sure I've gotten it wrong along the ways. I know there have been practitioners who I added, who I later realized weren't of the quality that I wanted. There are probably some people who I've sort of not brought on board who are already good and beautiful. It's obviously, you know, I'm not perfect in taking these decisions, but I just try to do the best of my ability. Um, so obviously to have my own sister who I trust, and I know that we have this um, sync in our values and like the experience that we want to give to people it's extremely exciting <laughs> um, uh, to kind of bring Ayurveda to you all in a way that I can believe and, and get behind so mm-hmm. stay tuned for that and as I said do let us know if it's something you're excited about so that we'll get moving a little bit quicker yes and uh, from my side with my uh, current background already in nutrition and being halfway through my uh, Ayurveda studies, I feel quite ready to take on clients who have, you know, minor and acute issues going on. And obviously, I'll definitely be waiting quite a while <laughs> to treat more serious conditions. But um, I think, you know, people who are just looking for a bit of support, they're stressed, they're burnt out, whatever they have going on, um, we should have a really good program to be able to help them. And, and weight soon. management is also something quite easy mm-hmm. to, to treat. So if you're overweight or underweight and need some help balancing your weight, that, that, would, be, um, that would be something that we can help with for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking forward, it's going to be fun. But yeah, definitely stress. If you're stressed or anxious, <clears throat> I think Sanya, I can say, is the best place to go. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Beautiful. Is there anything you want to share before we wrap up? I can't think of it. I mean, yeah, we could do a whole other hour if you want, but I think at some point we have to uh, let people live their lives. (laughs) So thank you everyone for listening. Um, 
as always, sort of the, the motivation by this podcast is to give you some dose of inspiration for your inner journey. So I hope the topics that, that we've covered today have done that. As always, I love your feedback. Usually I never get feedback. My guests always get the feedback <laughs> and I, I get the, the info from them. I'll share it with you. Don't so worry. Uh, I would love to hear from some of you. That would be lovely. <laughs> Particular episodes uh, or topics that have inspired you or any that you would like us to go into at some point. Um, it would also be nice to hear that. And Amber, thank you so much. Pleasure. Always a pleasure. Yeah, see you in an Ayurvedic workshop at Sanya sometime soon. Definitely. <laughs> thank you, everyone. Have a good day and uh, blessings for your go-within journey. Mm.